we have uh, in speaking frequently we talk about how uh, an aspect or this practice is about purifying the heart and mind or we talk about sometimes cycles of uh, purification and purity and Winnie uh, was mentioning that at the end of her talk last night so tonight I just want to talk like a little bit about like what are we talking about when we say purifying the heart and mind what what do we or anyway what do I mean by it um, and this has been something that's been really interesting and illuminating for me in uh, my practice and my understanding of the whole path in the last few years. So it's my current understanding because we know it's always moving and shifting. But um, really it seems to me that all aspects of the path that the Buddha taught, not just meditation, but all the different aspects are different ways that he's offering to us to purify the habits of our heart-mind. That really the whole path is about uh, shifting these habits from the, um, the suffering ones of, that are rooted in greed and hatred and confusion and delusion and to taking more refuge until the habits of wholesome become more our, our refuge, more natural. And uh, not just a good idea, but it's, it's the whole teaching. In fact, this is the way the Buddha describes Nibbana. I knew I wasn't going to be able to stay in order here. All right. This is the Buddha. Someone asked the Buddha, what do you mean Nibbana is directly visible? inviting one to come and see, immediate, to be personally experienced by the wise. The Buddha answers, when Brahman, a person is impassioned with lust, that's the word for greed, lobha, depraved through hatred, that's all the different forms of ill will, hatred, fear, bewildered through delusion, overwhelmed and infatuated by delusion, Then she plans for her own harm, for the harm of others, for the harm of both, and she experiences in her mind suffering and grief. But when lust, hatred, and delusion have been abandoned, one neither plans for one's own harm or the harm of another, and so forth, and does not experience in her mind suffering and grief. In this way, Brahman, is Nibbana directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, worthy of application to be personally experienced by the wise. So he's basically equating the immediate experience of Nibbana, the real freedom of heart and mind, with the mind and heart that is free, temporarily or forever, but even temporarily, of greed, hatred, confusion. That's what we're talking about in terms of purifying the heart and mind. It's not just about feeling good. And it's not like a should or about being good or being bad. 
but it's really just seeing what's causing suffering and what's not, and this is what he points to about it. And so it's really, to me, fascinating to explore, and to explore, which you can't go in, but all the different ways that we are doing that here and in our life. One way this has been helpful and illuminating to me is in terms of, you know, no, we know about so many different just meditation practices. Just Vipassana, let's just stick with Vipassana mindfulness practices, so many different ones. And then there's the uh, shamatha concentration practices, and then there's other kinds of practices. And I don't know about you, but it can be in my mind at times, think, well, which one, which one's the best? Or which one's better? Or which one should I be doing? Which one will I get more out of? Or which is the real one? You know, which is the one for those people who can't do the real one? That's probably the one I'm doing. And which is the real one that's gonna take me to the breakthrough? And that's what we're here for, the breakthrough. This purifying the mind stuff, okay, that's, you know, what they tell us when we're lost in self-hatred, when our fear is coming up again for the 10 millionth time. And they said, that's okay, that's great, that's purification. We go, yeah, right. Mm -hmm." And walk out and go, what's the real one? (laughs) But this is what's so cool. It's all the real one. And it takes it all, believe me. It takes all the different practices at all the different times of our life. Because the habits, I don't know if you noticed, that the habits of uh, wanting arising, or ill will arising, or fear, or anger, delusion, that they come up a lot. Have you noticed that? (laughs) That's good. That's the beginning of purification, to notice it. Seriously. But do you notice how much they come up? And have you noticed how as your practice goes on, and you've been here four weeks now, and whatever you may think is completely irrelevant, but all of you, your practice is deepening. Your practice is, you know, getting more profound. You're coming to see um, more subtle layers of stuff which is both beautiful, the the wholesome qualities of heart and mind you're seeing too, very important, equally to recognize with the so-called torments or so-called defilements or kalesha. I might use the word kalesha rather than defilements, which I really don't like as a word. And I don't want to keep saying greed, hatred, delusion, greed, hatred, delusion. So I may just say kalesha. But so as your practice, as your mindfulness gets steadier and your mind gets a bit more collected, yeah, actually, at times, it could be that you notice these qualities, these difficult qualities, more than before. Has anybody noticed that? No, I'm serious. <laughs> and then you think, oh, God, it's going backwards. You know, it's worse. But no, we see it on more and more subtle levels, which I'll talk about. And this is essential. Essential, but only when we're meeting it with the right understanding. Otherwise, it's like, you know, unbearable. And even with right understanding, once in a while, it's unbearable. But so to begin to explore what, what makes purification 
or the habits of mind shifting possible, just very like a two minute go, go, foray into Abhidhamma, which is like a you know, 25 year study, so two minutes. It's Winnie's, when Winnie was talking about we're an open system. So when we talk about purifying the heart-mind, it's this, uh, we use two different words in English, but chitta, the word in the Pali language, it's the same. So heart-mind is not that sense of split, the whole mental activity, the psyche. It's an open system. When we talk about mind, not talking about some static entity, self uh, existing entity that's doing things and deciding things and that purifying it means we kind of get out the, the scrubber, you know, and we start just scrubbing it with steel wool and cleaning, 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 and finally we have this pure lump of mind. So <laughs> it's not like that. As Andy Alinsky puts it very succinctly, the mind is not a subject, a thing, a subject that has objects as content, but it is rather the activity or process of cognizing the flow of events. So just as is the body, so is the mind an activity, a process, arising moment to moment and passing moment to moment, just like everything else. So here's a little quick Abhidhamma foray, and I don't want to get sidetracked on it, but the way um, it's described a moment of mind of psyche is consciousness, which we've talked about a lot as one of the aggregates, vinyana, that simple quality of knowing, right? that just arises in every moment. Just the pure knowing of an object in itself, it's not wholesome or unwholesome, right? Just the sound comes and there's that knowing, labeling it hearing is then a mental factor. So any moment of consciousness together in that moment, you could say arises various mental factors. These are the Sankara um, aggregate, various mental factors co-arise with the consciousness in a moment. And this forms what you might call a moment of mind. Nama or chitta, I'm gonna call it chitta. And so um, in the way that Abhidhamma breaks it down, and we don't have to go there, but some of this we can feel in ourselves. It talks about 52 different specific mental factors. And so in any moment of uh, consciousness with these mental factors arising together, there's a lot of them are happening at once. It's not just one. Don't go nuts trying to see them all. Okay, we're just gonna use this to help us look at the obvious things. So, but just for example, there's seven um, mental factors that are called universals that arise in every moment of consciousness. That's like um, contact, where consciousness meets the object, and then Vedana, feeling tone, Sanya, perception, Chaitana, volition, Ekagata, one-pointedness. Yes, you who thought one-pointedness meant you had to be deep in the fourth jhana. It's actually a universal factor. Just the quality that allows the mind to, you know, just know for a minute something's happening. One-pointedness. Attention and something called life faculty, 
which is it's, it's this, it sustains the vitality of consciousness and the mental factors just for a moment, just enough for that moment to be. Just to give you an example of how complicated it gets, I'm really not going to go on, but just that there's a lot of mental factors arising in one moment of consciousness, and they come and go. So consciousness is a living, changing, always changing experience. So along with the, the seven that are always there, there's other ones that come and go. Some of them are wholesome, so-called, or not leading on to happy states, to clarity, and some are unwholesome. Altogether, they say there's 14 unwholesome and 25 beautiful ones, just so you know. There's a lot more beautiful ones <laughs> than unwholesome ones. <laughs> we just tend to notice the effect of the unwholesome ones because they really make a mess of things. But the wholesome ones, there's a lot of them, and a lot of them arise together. So, of the unwholesome, of course, the three roots, which are, one of them is present, uh, is delusion, greed, and hatred, Right? Delusion is present in any unwholesome moment of consciousness. There's always delusion. There's not always greed or aversion. There's a couple that are only delusion. And they make all these different states of consciousness with all the different combinations. We're not going there. But, so there can be times that's just delusion, but there's not greed or hatred. And then if there's greed, there's delusion, but greed and hatred don't exist simultaneously. Delusion is always there with greed or it's always there with hatred. But so these are coming and going, just as all the beautiful states. So some of the beautiful, there's 19 in any beautiful state of mind, there's 19 beautiful qualities that are always present. I'm not going to go through, well, just an example is faith, mindfulness, um, non-greed, non-hatred, neutrality of mind, which is equanimity, Tatra Maja Tata, for your information, is the, the Pali name of that uh, mental factor. I love that. Tatra Maja Tata. I mean, standing in the middle of everything, kind of, you know, equanimity. Um, and tranquility of body and mind, lightness of body and mind, quite a few. And then others that come and go with specific consciousnesses. So it's complicated. All that we don't need to know. But the thing that we see that makes it interesting is that because every moment consciousness is arising new, different, it has the potential to be different. I mean, it is different in every moment, but it's not steady state. But it's not that it's just an, uh, a random haphazard, oh, this moment, the mind is completely filled with hatred. The next moment, maybe it'll be completely filled with bliss. Who knows? Let's hope. You know, and it's like, it's not an act of will, right? We've all tried that. May my mind be peaceful. May metta arise. I know that sounds like the practice, but I mean, just like an act of, okay, may metta arise. May this, you know, ill will stop now. Doesn't work. It's lawful. It's not random. But as we've seen, it's not in our personal control. But because the changes are lawful in the most simple way is whatever's present in one mind moment makes it that much more easier for it to arise in the next. I mean, that's not rocket science, right? 
you've probably noticed if you're really angry about something and you really, you know, stew on it for a moment, what's likely to be in the mind moment, the next mind moment of consciousness arising? I can't believe that. that's stupid. Next moment, oh, isn't life beautiful? Probably not. It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> I can't believe it. I can't believe it. You know, it kind of topples over. As um, <laughs> the Buddha says, what the mind frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the natural inclination of the mind. And I mean, what, you know, so what mental qualities are arising frequently, 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 and it becomes a habit. That becomes the natural inclination of mind. So, but this, this is equally true for the beautiful qualities as it is for the difficult qualities. And so this is where it can get really, um, really interesting to explore really when we talk about how the mind works. What is the uh, experience, the effect in the mind, in the heart, in our thought, speech and actions, when the, the qualities in the chitta in that moment, when the habit of greed or ill will or fear or delusion is running the show. And what's, the, what's it like when the beautiful qualities are present? To really explore the nature of both. And the only way that is really, I think, possible it's what we've been doing here, of course, cultivating mindfulness, this quality of, of just interested, kind attention. And what really helps is to bring this attitude of curiosity to it rather than the attitude of, oh my God, you know, this is so ugly to look at. I can't believe my mind. You know, it's like, you know, I don't have to tell you, right? We take it so personally. That's why... I, I love it when Winnie last night gave us the big picture back 25,000 years in time when we can't really know the cause of anything, but the cause contains everything. And the night before, multi-universes, you know, from Joseph, so go all the way out there back to the Big Bang and maybe that's only one universe out of multi-ones or go back 25,000 years or even longer to the first Homo sapien it's hard to take it quite so personally when you see the uh, aversion coming up in the mind or the wanting coming up in the mind. If you can remember, oh, this is like a, a scientific heartfelt investigation, both of the nature of suffering, but just how does the human mind work? Here's an example of it. They all kind of work the same. It's amazing to think. <laughs> we all have our different, you know, personal stories and personal history and all. But if we get really interested in looking and seeing, we can kind of see what's the nature of greed? How does it work? How does it do its job, to use Utejaniya's language? How does aversion work? How does it do its job? How does faith, how does mindfulness, how does wisdom work? How does it do its job? And it's, of course, mindfulness that lets us see this. But coming back to the Buddha's talking about or pointing to Nibbana as being 
directly visible when the heart-mind is free from kalesha. And the mm, kind of the reverse of that being that all of our internal, all of our internal suffering comes from these three roots of greed, hatred, confusion in our minds. And for me, if I look around the world, all the human-imposed suffering out there, not, you know, not natural catastrophes and stuff, but all the human-imposed suffering, and we can, the whole list of war and religious intolerance and racism and poverty and economic injustice and crime and abuse and fear, all of it going on and on and on, you can see it, you can really see it's kalesas acting out through body, speech, and mind of beings. And when look, looking on that level, when one has the noticing the kalesa lens on, it's, it can be overwhelming, right? It's so much, you can really see it though. But then when we look in our own minds and see how much suffering is coming when, you know, the mind is filled with ill will or aversion and it leads to speech or action and we're aware of it, how much suffering? Then when we notice other people acting that way, that's where the, the connection, the natural compassion comes. That doesn't mean what people are doing is okay. Just like it doesn't mean if, oh yes, I'm acting from ill will, that's really suffering, so, you know, go and break the window because I want some fresh air. It doesn't matter because I see, you know, it doesn't mean (laughs) we do whatever. It doesn't mean the horrible actions are okay. Not at all. But it shifts us from responding from knee-jerk ill will to being able to respond from compassion. That's wisdom. That's the wisdom that changes the whole show. And that wisdom comes from the steady mindfulness that's exploring these suffering habits in our mind and all the practices that help us in all the various ways to shift that. Because just like it's, as it's true that all the suffering comes from these difficult states, it's equally true that we, all of us, experience equally and maybe more so beautiful states, moments when we're not driven by greed, by hatred, confusion, as is true in the world. Look around the world and if you put on the, the wholesome lenses, you know, you don't get it so much from the news. Every now and then the news will tell you something really good somebody did, you know. You have to kind of listen for it. But just looking around the world is beautiful stuff. Acts of great love and courage and compassion and generosity. Everywhere you look, famous people, people you don't know, little things on the street, when you're looking for that. And we see that in ourselves too. This is from Ajahn Buddha Dasa. From an article he wrote called Nibbana for Everyone, which should be encouraging. And he's, it's a whole long article. He's, he was quite a scholar, but he's talking about Nibbana, that Nibbana may be summed up as the coolness of mind and heart that results from the extinction of Kalesha, 
from the extinction of defilements in the mind. Whenever they're not present, there is what may be called Nibbana, whose meaning is cool. He's making a pun on the Thai here because the word apparently, I don't speak Thai, although I spent quite some time there. Um, apparently in Thai, a lot of Pali words have kind of made their way into the language and they talk about cooling rice. The rice has cooled as the rice has nibbana So he's kind of making a, a, a pun. He had quite a sense of humor. But he goes on to say that because the kalesha, the defilements, they're conditioned experiences, like aspects that come in the mind and go, as I was describing. So they have birth and death like anything else. And when the causal conditions are not present, the defilements simply become extinct. It's not like an act of will, get out the hammer and get rid of the kalesha. When the causes that are feeding them stop feeding them, they simply don't arise. It's so much easier than thinking we have to do that. We just explore and see what's feeding it. What starves Kalatia? What feeds wholesome? And by observing this through the steady mindfulness cause and effect, what's so cool is what feeds wholesome is actually steady mindfulness leading to wisdom. When wisdom recognizes wholesome qualities, they get stronger. We don't have to do that. In fact, we can't because we try to do it and we only know how to do stuff from wanting and aversion. But when we notice faith, it brightens the heart and mind. When we're really noticing mindfulness, awareness, appreciating it, then it's so much easier for the next moment for mindfulness to arise. Well, what starves the kalesha is the same thing, wise attention, wisdom. When wisdom recognizes what's going on with the kalesha, the, the, it's not like an act, oh, this is bad, stop. It's like seeing so many people have described just little moments of seeing, wanting something, and maybe it's wanting a particular mental state, someone was describing that, and seeing how the states are just changing, changing, changing so quickly sometimes. So wanting comes up and you see the state go away before you even recognize the wanting and the want doesn't make sense. You don't have to say, I'm gonna stop wanting that state that passed. It's like, it doesn't make any sense. The wanting just dissolves. It becomes extinct. Simply through the steadiness of clear seeing and wisdom, this is what starves the kalashas. So he's talking about that, so back to Buddha Dasa, that when the conditions aren't present, the defilements simply become extinct. And although this extinction is temporary for all of us, in other words, the coolness takes place temporarily, it still is a phenomenon, but that has the sense, the real sense of nibbana, even though it's not the lasting one. Anyone can see, he says, this temporary nibbana which nourishes we sentient beings, though we still will see the difficulties arise from time to time. Anyone can see that if the defilements are with us all day and all night, every second without ceasing, who could ever stand them? 
And so cast your mind back. Do you really, really think that the defilements have been with you all day and all night, every second, without ceasing? You know, it's like we couldn't bear it. Under such conditions, you know, we'd go nuts. So let us consider well the fact that one survives because there are periods when the fires of Kalatia are not burning. And in fact, we could say that these periods last longer than when the fires are burning. Periodical Nibbana. So you can think of that. Periodical Nibbana keeps us all alive and well without any exceptions. We survive because of this kind of nourishment. This is truly normal and natural. So just like last week I was saying, noticing not only when self sense of self arises and passes, but notices the moments it's not there, it's equally the same. To bring this, just this interest, exploring how the kalashas arise and work, what feeds them, what starves them, how they function, do they create suffering, and what helps to purify and shift the habits. So we also bring equal interest and non-identification, non-selfing, to all the moments of coolness, of non-defilement. Because noticing that equally is equally important. This is really essential to our path of awakening. As the Buddha said, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. Not easy. And as we go on and explore, and as I mentioned in the beginning, the, what we start to see is in terms of exploring how the kalashas show up and what helps to purify the habits, that they're tricky little devils. They can you know, really be incredibly gross and obvious, or they can be really quite subtle. So this is what we want to really explore with interest, not taking it personally. And so to begin with recognizing how these roots, on, uh, this is like on a simple level, right? When you recognize greed or wanting in the mind, when you recognize ill will or aversion, when you recognize delusion or confusion, or you have some vague sense there must be some confusion because you got no clue what's happening. So you can guess there's some delusion going on. On that level, and that's what I'm going to talk about in a minute, but then knowing even in our um, complex and deeply habituated personal personality patterns, our deep uh, traumas, our sufferings, you know, from a pet, so that are quite more complex that are arising for most of us. That's what happens in retreat. One of the things that happens over and over and over. And it's not that you're going to always see the clarity of greed, hatred, confusion in the middle of those, but even our complex, difficult emotional states are triggered by one or two of those. So you may not see it at the root, but exploring how these, how these roots of suffering work uh, on a more simple level is one of the great things we can do on retreat. And then sometimes you can start to see how it functions in a more complex level. So just beginning to explore how 
these qualities, when they're in arising in a moment of mind, a moment of consciousness, how they distort perception and how they lead onward to suffering. The Buddha said once that lust, greed, hatred, delusion are makers of measurement. Makers of measurement. You know what measurement means? Uh, someone was asking. Measurement means, this is for uh, people whose English isn't your first language, because someone asked me that. Like measurement means you, you know, deciding how big this is. You take out a, a tape measure and how, how many centimeters wide is this? How far is it from here to here? So that's a sense of here, a sense of there, a sense of somewhere to get, a maker of measurement. So uh, they say in that they impose limitations upon the range and depth of the mind, makers of measurement. So let me give you simple examples. I talked some about that um, last week, but I'll say it again. So noticing when you become aware of wanting in the mind, and this is easier with little things, okay? But we want to get into, oh, okay, here's desire, rather than getting focused on what we desire or why we shouldn't desire that or talking ourselves out of desiring it or pretending we don't desire it and going and getting it or whatever (laughs) it is that we're doing. What's much more interesting is to take your attention and turn it onto the desire and the quality in the mind and notice just noticing, like it's like a, a scientific experiment. What does it do? So I'll give this example I often use, but it was a good one. I was in um, the desert in California, teaching in Yucca Valley years ago, walking, I love walking out in that desert. Um, where, anyway, I just love walking out. They're very peaceful in the early morning with uh, Joshua trees and a, f- a, few, a few little animals, but you don't see much. But occasionally there are these large land tortoises that it's like really special to see. You don't see them much. So I was out walking and just, just feeling peaceful and open and present. And the thought came, maybe I'll see a tortoise, which could just come and go. But it didn't just come and go. It um, landed with wanting, with greed. And this is what keeps thoughts going. It's not the thought. We don't see the greed underneath it, or we don't see the aversion underneath it, even though we may see the thought. So I noticed how this affected it later. I wasn't so clear. But so what had been just really present and open, I was present wanting to see a tortoise. So I'm walking, completely focused, looking, looking, looking. And the mind is like, that's not tortoise, that's not tortoise, that's not tortoise. Looking, looking, looking. Completely different experience. Absolutely, the mind is narrowed and limited and measured. Where's the tortoise? Here am I. Where's the tortoise? And before there had been no sense of that at all. Really interesting. This is what happened. Oh, forget the tortoise. Settle back. It's just what is. Notice the difference. The second one is a moment of purity. The greed dissipated. So the greed, it'll dissipate eventually because everything changes. Feeding it would be, yeah, I need to see a tortoise. I need to see a tortoise. At some point, noticing the tightness, bringing the awareness to the tight. Okay, just let it be. The craving dissolves by itself from wisdom. But so playing with that, seeing how that works. Same thing with aversion. Have you noticed 
Well, with aversion, it's more like the mind shrinks back, but it tightens and narrows. Have you noticed how when something brings up a lot of aversion in your mind, you're married to that object just the same way as if you were really grasping at it? So like if there's a loud, disruptive sound, have you no- and there's aversion to it, have you noticed how that kind of takes over? Or have you ever had a time, well, I shouldn't say this because it'll trigger it for people. <laughs> it happens to almost everybody on retreat where all of a sudden you notice you're swallowing a lot and, <laughs> and it, drives, it drives you crazy as if you were swallowing before and then all you can notice right, is how much you swallow and the aversion. Then you think everyone in the room is waiting for you you to swallow, right? No one else is, this, I I don't know what it is, but it's a well-known meditation phenomenon. This is (laughs) sooner or later, if you haven't had it yet. And then you'll find, you know, a week later or a day later, you never, you never even notice it again. You go, what was that all about? Am I still swallowing? Yeah, what was that all about? It was all about aversion. That's what it was all about. Just boom, you know, (laughs) it takes over the world. Notice that. Maker of measurement, it shrinks and narrows our consciousness. And then, of course, I talked all last week, it's all about me. But one way, that sense of measurement, I like the way Sony Rinpoche talks about it. As he says, uh, he said in, in Tibet, when we're like, measuring to build a house, to measure the foundation of the house. So to make what I think we call here the footprint of the house, he said, like you're standing there and you have like a a string. And so from you, you measure the string out as far as it goes. And then from you all the way around, and that's how you make the measurement of the house. He said, but that's like the sense of self. Everything's measured from here. Everything's measured from me. Every sense experience is, what does it say about me? What does it have to do about me? So just noticing that again really narrows and constricts the world. And, and, and even just anything that happens comes to be like a message from the universe. Have you noticed that? So I was, like, I was thinking like, if that day I had seen a tortoise, the mind goes, oh, the universe is really like all coming together to show me a tortoise, you know? <laughs> right, the whole universe is conspiring to let me have my desire, you know? <laughs> it's like, or the universe is all conspiring to make these unpleasant sounds happen to me. Why me? You know, <laughs> it's like this sense of narrowing, restricting. So noticing how it works. It works like that for everybody. Notice when it comes, when it passes. And then as we start to get a feeling for it, there will be times in our more difficult, um, you know, really deep, strong patterns. Sometimes they're just strong. All we can do is be really present with them, with kindness. That's already the purification process. Because the habits, the knee-jerk habits are, we meet stuff with greed, hatred, and delusion and keep on feeding it. That's kind of what we learn in the world. To meet a difficult state of heart or mind with kindness, with friendly interest, with even just simple awareness, that moment is what's the purification of consciousness. We tend to think the purification is we keep, this bad stuff's gonna stop coming up. When am I gonna, all my personality's gonna purify. I think I said this last time, but it can't hurt saying again. I've been waiting. I've been waiting for a long time for my personality to purify, and so have my friends. (laughs) 
just in our last meeting this afternoon. My closest <laughs> friend is like, what's a remedy for her personality? No. <laughs> this is what we live with. No one here. <laughs> I've given up pretty much. I'm much more at ease with it. That's the purification. <laughs> the purification is what's arising in the mind and heart right now. It's not about changing the object. So there'll be times when, you know, our pants are so strong, all we can do is meet it kindly. That's shifting, the, that's shifting, that's purifying. But then there's other times when we can start to see, like for instance, self-judging, which is a pattern that many of us have. And now I can recognize when it comes in my mind, I can feel the energy like a cloud. And I can, I know it's dosa, aversion, hatred, mind. I know that, I know that's the root. I can feel the dosa, which is the Pali word for hatred, I like that better because it has a wider range, all the many ranges of dosa. I can feel it and I can see how each moment of aversion that I'm identifying with, yeah, that is really bad. You are really horrible. You are really hopeless. This shouldn't be happening. You should be better by now. That just distorts the perception and makes the next moment more distorted more affected by ill will, by hatred. And it just turns into a downward kind of a spiral. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> so that's gonna happen. It's gonna happen, keep it. But what we do is we start to get interested in exploring how, and in these simpler moments of Kalatia, we're getting a sense of how they feel and how they function. Then at times, there'll be times when the mindfulness is steady and strong enough that you can really kind of explore within the complicated pattern. And I can, I can really see the aversion in the self-judging. And I know how it works enough. I know I can't trust any assessment or any thought that comes out of this mind when self-judging is distorting perception. So when you recognize self-judging and then you're trying to assess how good your practice is, forget about it. Just recognize, oh, that's aversion in the mind. Feels like this. That's, that's the shift from being caught to changing the habit. This is what we're talking about with purification. Okay, so when I talk about mm, all the different ways the Buddha offered us, different aspects of the path, how they're all working and helping us in different ways, shifting these habits. Each of these is a whole talk, so I can only kind of mention them each briefly, but he talks about, you could say, three levels, just as a way of describing in our experience excuse me, three levels that these, um, these kalatia, these torments of mind show up in our experience. And the first, uh, strongest you could call, like, the, you know, the English translations are always so like Victorian and weird, but um, the, the translation of this is like the, the kalatia of transgression. <laughs> Let's just say it means you act it out. It means, you know, the greed, the hatred, the confusion is so strong that we speak or act from it. And what is the purification practice is sila, is taking on as, uh, as practice a relationship to the five lay precepts or the eight precepts or the 227 precepts in whichever way we do it. 
But so the, the habit, when, when the energy of the kalatia is so strong, and we all know this, right? It comes out our mouth. Or look in the world, people act from it. And we can rationalize forever, but you can really see when we're paying attention how strong it is when we act, when we say the thing, when we do the thing, or when we steal, or whatever it might be. But so the practice of sila, the practice of restraint, is a very powerful practice of purifying the habits of the mind and heart on this really strong level. And I, I sometimes think I never quite appreciated enough. So restraint, consciously refraining from wrong speech. That's actually one in the Abhidhamma, one of the wholesome mental factors. Restraint, wise speech. Or restraining from wrong action. Stealing, lying, killing, all of that. Wise action is one of the beautiful mental factors. And wise livelihood is one of the beautiful mental factors. So, of course, here you'll still notice we may, not, we may consciously not act from greed, but you'll still notice the greed in the mind. But there's that beautiful quality of refraining, of restraint. And that's really important to notice. So, so just whatever you have been doing in your life before here, I don't know, but probably you were, there was probably a lot of refraining from unwholesome speech and action. And here, all of us together being on at least the five precepts, consciously take it in. Notice all the times that you haven't acted out of greed or out of anger, out of delusion, harder to notice, but those two are easier to notice. We tend to then judge ourselves because you're still seeing the, I'm so greedy and I'm not going to go get a second on dessert, but I'm so filled with greed. And we tend to, it's easy to sit and judge that rather than noticing the beautiful quality of restraint. And because it's lawful, what we practice towards that the mind naturally inclines, you start to notice I mean, I hope you start to notice. I'm putting it in your mind to look and see if you notice that restraint starts to come more naturally and easily. That, and I'm just picking food because it, for some people, it's complicated. For some people, but it's just a, an obvious example. But I remember my first uh, long retreat here. You know, I'd be like first on the food line, or soon anyway, soon after the food came out. And there was one guy, I didn't know anybody, he would come ambling in 25 minutes after the meal was served. And they didn't keep refreshing it like they did here, do now. He'd come ambling in and there'd be some things left and some things not. And I think, God, he must be enlightened. You know, he's <laughs> amazing. He just comes in and eats and leaves and I'll never be like that. But now I notice now when I'm on retreat, I don't think about it. It's nothing, it's not an act of will. But just somehow, from a lot of years of, in different ways, practicing refraining, as soon as you want something, you go get it. No, we don't. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter what. But that refraining from acting out of greed is strengthening this wholesome quality of non-greed. So just recognize that in all your time here, all the moments of the day, I mean, it's not every moment. There's moments greed isn't there. You're not strengthening non-greed. It's already not there. But notice, 
when there's conscious refraining from action or just when it doesn't arise, when it gets more natural and easy. That's a quality of the habits of mind and heart purifying. And so seal is a powerful practice, conscious conduct in our life. Generosity, the practice of generosity, not so much about what one should give, this is a whole other talk, but the quality in the mind of the joy of sharing, the joy of connectedness. It's really a beautiful, joyful quality. You can't share much with things here and please don't start with each other. But even because we just give, we're giving each other the genera- generosity of heart, the space to be quiet with yourself. And that can be a generous act. Refraining from going and talking to someone can be an act of generosity. Appreciate that. That's a letting go of craving. So this is a whole other um, teaching of the Buddha, a practice that's really a great way and a very powerful way of purifying the habits of greed in particular, but also ill will, also of separation. When you're really offering something to someone, the sense of separation goes away. And if you really are from your heart offering something, even a smile, there's not ill will present in that moment. There's open-hearted generosity. It's one of the beautiful states. The beautiful and the unbeautiful don't coexist in any moment. So there's generosity. The second uh, level is called obsessive kalesa. And this is, I'm sure you know, (laughs) the thoughts are just spinning, thoughts of greed, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of delusion, on and on and on, obsessive, obsessive, obsessive. This is one we get to make really good friends with here on retreat. It happens a lot in life too. And what practice really helps us cool that out, balance that out, is samadhi. So you're going to see this is sila samadhi panya, the three parts of the Eightfold Path. So samadhi, collectedness of mind, is what starts to um, purify temporarily the obsessive kalesa, the spinning, spinning, uh, ill will, wanting, delusion. I know we've talked about in samadhi, this collectedness of mind, that when there's some concentration, the hindrances are kept away. And it's really kind of interesting to see as the mind gets more and more collected. And I don't mean, it doesn't have to be one-pointed, but collectedness of mind, samadhi, it's, it's all the shamatha practices, all the brahma-vihara practices, or anapana being with the breath, but it's also what we call momentary samadhi, kanaka samadhi, which is the steadiness of awareness of attention on changing objects, which is very much our Vipassana meditation. But also with that, as the attention gets steady, 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 have you noticed we've mentioned continuity once in a while? Steady, steady, steady. That's what leads to the collectedness of samadhi. And as the mind gets collected, the hindrances don't really, they can't really, the strong ones, greed, hey, ill will, doubt, they don't really get in. And as the mind gets more and more collected, more calm, even um, um, greed and lust, anger, agitation, don't really arise. 
This is one of the reasons that the collected mind, the, the concentrated mind, people like it so much. Partly we like it because we think, oh good, I'm finally getting somewhere. Okay, that's not so wholesome. But <laughs> partly when there's that sense of collectedness and it can be with metta or it can be people come and say, oh, the awareness, the mindfulness is just kind of flowing by itself and things are coming and going and there's no real problem. Whatever's coming, it's interesting. And there's a sense of there's not agitation, there's not anger, there's not wanting. It's just whatever's coming, it's seen. That's a kind of purification of mind. And so the, um, the, the torments aren't arising. And as one practices like really um, very um, one pointed into jhana practice, the power of the collected mind gets really strong and the sense of the purity, you can really taste it, but it doesn't have to be that strong. We can taste it, notice what the pure mind feels like. The mind that isn't, you know, kind of driven by wanting, by agitation. Sometimes, you know, before we've started practice, we may have never even really noticed that that's possible. And when you feel it, even just a little, it's like, ah, just this coolness, this peace. It's kind of the mind that, that, that isn't distorted by the kalatia. One person described it to me as, oh, feeling like the awareness is squeaky clean. You know, like when you're cleaning a window and it's so clean it squeaks, you know. There's just nothing in the way there. So noticing that. Of course, later greed can arise for it because these are, this is a temporary purification. But it is really shifting the habits of mind. First, we're even getting a a sense that this is possible. And also, I remember many times in practice where the the peacefulness and the happiness of the mind that isn't kind of riddled by kalatia is so much more peaceful and happy than any sense pleasure I could think of, any. Every sense pleasure starts to seem really gross compared to that. Which is why we can get so attached and to kinds of concentration. That attachment part comes later and that isn't helpful. But in terms of the obsessive defilements, it's the collectedness of mind that really helps to shift the habit. But it's conditional, of course. And so when the conditions that lead to the collectedness change, go away, the habits of Kalatia can come back in again. Not can, they will. Sometimes, slowly, slowly, you know, the purity can last a while and we can rediscover it. We learn to appreciate it. We learn how to feed it. But once in a while, you'll have a period here where you feel really focused and then somehow it shifts and you feel like you're just hit over the head by some really strong, difficult emotional state. And you go, how did that happen? You know, it was so, because it's kind of like the, the, the steadiness lifts up and the old habits come roaring back. So this is the third level called the, the latent kalatia, the underlying tendency for one of the kalatias to arise given the appropriate conditions. This is like if the seed is there, you give it water, it's going to sprout. Don't let this one make you feel hopeless and discouraged. <laughs> but it's why things are going fine, fine, fine. You're really fucking, and all of a sudden you let it up. Oh, let me just enjoy the trees and whop, you know. <laughs> Where did that come from? 
And it can be little things. Someone um, told me a few years ago on retreat here, on a three-month retreat, and they were like very mindful, noting everything. We were walking past the breakfast table after breakfast was over and just noticing walking and looking. And and then all of a sudden, it was like a different person. Their hand just went out and grabbed an orange and took it and kept on going. And they're like, where did that come from? You know, didn't notice the wanting come up and acting from like, whoa. Not that it was bad to take an orange, but it's just like, where did that come from? It can be like that, very small, or it can be really big. And so here, what the practice is, is wisdom, clear seeing. The Buddha said these underlying, this tendency for the Kalashas to come about is not seen through by an act of will or by doing, but by wise seeing. This is where our steady mindfulness comes in to just be with it, not to fix it or hate it, but to just be willing to stay present. Because we never know when a sudden old habit will emerge. We just never know. I don't mean this like a scary thing. I mean, this is why we want to take refuge in awareness. So, okay, two examples to end. One is like on the scary side, but just how we never really know. And when a latent defilement comes up, so strong that we act it out. It could just be a few seconds to could change our life. I was listening to an interview on uh, public radio last year sometime with two men who were working with um, young, young prisoners, young men who were, I think, like really in for life or for many, many years. And they were talking to one young man who was in for life. They didn't say what he'd done, but some violent thing. So I'm assuming murder, but I don't know. And he said, this young guy, uh, it really affected me. I mean, here the young guy, the, guy the, the men who worked with him were reporting it. Um, he said, you know, I just wish I had back the, those three to five seconds of my life where I did this violent act for which I'm now in jail for life. Three to five seconds, you know? We never know. Now, the more we have been practicing all these other aspects of sila, of generosity, of uh, samadhi, of mindfulness, the chances are our, our, our habits are really getting so purified that, you know, probably wouldn't come to that for any of us. But still, we never want to abandon wise seeing. And it's not an act of will that the purifying happens, but simply through watching to see. So just, I'll end with this last example from a good friend who's told me I can use this. Because this is, this is mundane, but this is our life. Why seeing is what allows the wisdom, the panya arise, which by itself dissipates the habits, changes, purifies the heart-mind. So this friend, her um, family lives quite distant from where she lives. I've known her for like 30 years. And so it's been quite difficult when she goes home to visit her family. And so in the last few years, just a mother and sister, and it's always difficult. And every time she goes with all the years of practice, you know, you make that, that affirmation, I'm going to go home and really work with metta and not get sucked into the dynamics and not get sucked into being negative. Have any of you ever done that? <laughs> we know how that works. So 
she always does this. He goes home and tries, but with really difficult sibling. And uh, I mean, it really sounds like a difficult situation. So she said after a retreat here a couple of years ago, where the emphasis was really on what I'm talking about, just bringing kind awareness to watch the habits in mind and see how they work and trust the mindfulness to bring the wisdom and that that purifies by itself instead of trying, because by trying we don't even let ourselves see what's happening. So she said she got on the plane and started her usual, okay, when I walk in the door, I'm going to be really kind, I'm going to be really, and then she said, wait a minute, let's just watch the mind. So she started watching and she saw as soon as she got on the plane, her mind went into reactive mode. She got resentful and resistant and she was saying things like, oh, I'm gonna just be nice, filled with loving kindness. But she was like, oh, kind of the sister and this is gonna happen. And she saw her mind building up, her heart building up this whole story. And she just watched it, how the aversion was coming as a habit. When she was watching with awareness, really present with it, that was already purifying because she wasn't feeding it and delusion feeds it. We pretend it's not there. It keeps on working under the, ha- under, the, under the radar, right? So she was watching the whole thing. She walked in the door and she saw how as soon as she walked in the door, she was ready for battle and she just saw that in herself. Instead of feeding it, it relaxed and she saw when her sister came and she was ready to have a difficult interaction before her sister opened her mouth, didn't even give her a chance. And so she just watched like this. She said it was the best visit she ever had because she was able to be with her own process and just by trusting the steady mindfulness, she was able, not by an act of will, but by wisdom, that the the processes, the habits were being purified. So this is what's available to all of us. All of these different aspects support us. So when you're having a really bad day and you don't have one moment of mindfulness, contemplate your sila, all the acts of of restraint. That's wholesome. That's changing the habit of mind from self-negativity, dosa, to beautiful just for one example. Okay, that's enough. So thank you for listening.